Colin Andrew Adams. Take you, Nicola Margaret Bridges, to be my lawful wedded wife. To have and to hold from this day forward and forsaking all others, I promise to love, honor, and cherish you. For better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, or until the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I can say with all certainty that that is one of the most solemn promises which I have made in my entire life. In fact, even as I recite it, I get goosebumps in the back of my neck, you know. I knew it then, I still know it now. This is a serious promise. It is so serious that while I made this vow six years ago, yesterday in fact, I should not under any circumstances forget this promise. And it is so serious, and actually around this time of year I think about this, to ask myself the the sober question, have I kept this promise? Have I been faithful to this promise or not? I should ask that. Because it's a serious promise. Well, if that is how I feel about this promise made to my wife, and if that is how we often feel about some of the promises that all of us make to other human beings, that they are a serious matter, then let me ask you, how much more serious is it when we make a promise To God. Promises made not just to another human creature. But promises made to our Creator. And in many cases, promises made to our Redeemer. The Redeemer of our souls. How much more seriously. And yet, so often, tragically... Terribly, we fail to keep our promises, don't we? And astonishingly, we even at times forget about the promises which we have made. So I've titled this sermon this morning, Oh Jesus, Have I Promised? Have I promised? Because maybe I've forgotten about some of the vows I have made to the Lord. Perhaps some years ago. And I believe God would challenge us this morning to think very carefully and to take very seriously the vows, the promises we have made to Him. Please would you turn with me now to Jeremiah chapter 34. Jeremiah chapter 34. And look with me in these chapters at some people who broke their promises and also to other individuals who kept the promise that they make. Let us read together a representative section. 
This is Jeremiah chapter 34, and we're going to read just a few verses from verse 8. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant, a promise, with all the people in Jerusalem to proclaim freedom for the slaves. Everyone was to free his Hebrew slaves, both male and female. No one was to hold a fellow Jew in bondage. So all the officials... And the people who entered into the covenant agreed that they would free their male and female slaves and no longer hold them in bondage. They agreed and set them free. But afterwards, they changed their minds and took back the slaves they had freed and enslaved them again. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I made a covenant with your forefathers when I brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I said, every seventh year, each of you must free any fellow Hebrew who has sold himself to you. After he has served you for six years, you must let him go free. Your fathers, however, did not listen to me or pay attention to me. Recently, you repented and did what is right in my sight. Each of you proclaimed freedom to his countrymen. You even made a covenant before me in the house that bears my name. But now you have turned round and profaned my name. Each of you has taken back the male and female slaves you had set free to go where they wished. You have forced them to become your slaves again. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You have not obeyed me. You have not proclaimed freedom for your fellow countrymen. So I now proclaim freedom for you, declares the Lord. Freedom to fall by the sword, plague and famine. I will make you abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth. The men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf They cut in two and then walked between its pieces. We'll just end our reading there for the moment. Let's pray together. Father, without your Holy Spirit to inspire and apply your word, we would be helpless and hopeless today. In this exercise. But we thank you for the Holy Scriptures. And we pray that the same Spirit who inspired the writing of these words might apply the truths contained in them to our hearts. Lord, we pray this eagerly and in dependence on your Holy Spirit. And in Jesus' name, Amen. One of the great blessings, and it is a great blessing, to preach on a Sunday is that, of course, you spend a great portion of the week preparing your message. And often I discover that as I prepare my message Tuesday, then Wednesday, then Thursday, then Friday, that over the course, in a cumulative sort of way, 
the Holy Spirit of God begins to impress upon me some area of sin in my life relating to the passage I'm studying. And it's been interesting this week as I've been studying chapter 34 and chapter 35 of Jeremiah, the Lord has put his finger on a very acute sin in my own heart, amongst the many other sins. And it is this, that I struggle to confess broken promises. I struggle to confess broken promises. I'm sure it has to do with my sinful nature. But I don't mind being reminded of many other sins, but I hate it when somebody implies or states that I have failed to keep my promise. It grates with my soul. It is uncomfortable. It is unbearable. Maybe you've experienced that aversion. But the Lord God says to us this morning, as He has said to me this week, listen, you break your promises. You break your promises. Each of us in this room have made promises that we have broken to God. See, if you doubt that, you only need to take your Bible and start reading through from the beginning. And to read in particular how the people of God, those who were closest to the heart of God, who really should have kept their promises, so frequently failed to keep them. And sadly, Jeremiah chapter 34 is a case in point. As we see in the people of Judah what we so often see in our own lives. They are promise breakers. Promise breakers. They make vows. They pledge allegiances. But in the last analysis, they break the pledge that they make. Now, how does it happen? How does this happen in our lives as well? Well, unsurprisingly, it begins with a big promise that we make. Look at verses 8 to 10. You need to know the situation just before we, we come to this. In verses 1 to 7, we, we learn that the nation of Judah was under attack at this point. The city of Jerusalem was under siege at this point. And the the mighty empire of Babylon was coming in full force against them with King Nebuchadnezzar at the helm. And his intention was to break through the walls and to swat this tiny fly, the little nation of Judah. And at the same time, at this moment, King Zedekiah, who is the ruler of Judah, decides to take an initiative. And along with the people... In verses 8 to 10 we see, he makes a big promise. A covenant promise to the Lord God. In fact, in those uh, two verses, four times we read about this. Twice the word covenant is used, and twice the word agreement is used. That's exactly what a covenant was. A covenant was an agreement made with God, complete with a vow, which was ratified by the shedding of blood, an animal's blood. And which was completed after they had cut the animal into pieces by separating the pieces and walking between them. The reason they did that last part was to remind you as you made the agreement 
that if you did not keep your covenant, you would suffer the same fate as that animal. You would literally be dead meat. And yet unperturbed, the people of Judah make a promise. They plow ahead unsolicited. It is not essential for them to add this promise, but they do so. And it is a short-lived promise. The violation soon follows afterwards, verse 11. Maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months, we don't know. They changed their minds and they took back the slaves they had freed and they enslaved them. What a rotten bunch. It may have been that this was when the Babylonian army, we learn later on in the chapter, temporarily withdrew from Jerusalem. Because the Egyptians were attacking them on another front, and so they had to withdraw and fight the Egyptians for a little while. And it may have been that the food shortage within the city eased at this point. You see, it was probably the case that the reason that they set free the slaves was for economic reasons. The masters couldn't afford to feed their own slaves. I know what we'll do. We'll we'll make a covenant with God. We'll set them free and we'll please God at the same time. And they can feed themselves. And so as as, as the problem abates, they take them back. We'll have you back, please. They make a promise. They break a promise. Now, some of you perhaps are sitting and you're saying to yourself, well, see, this is exactly the thing. We shouldn't make promises like this. God. This is what happens when we make vows. Vows are a bad thing. And some Christians do in fact believe that particularly because of the new covenant established by Jesus, that that Christians today should not make vows. They should not make promises. Little covenants. And it is true, as they point out, that, that Jesus provides the definitive agreement with God for our salvation. That Jesus alone is the chief, the unique, the central, the unparalleled agreement between God, a holy God, and a sinful people. There is no other covenant of salvation like that. And it is also true, if you read the the Gospels, it's also true that Jesus outlawed flippant promises. Do you remember that? In Matthew chapter 5, the the, the Pharisees, they were making all sorts of vows and promises, but they were of a very light and flippant nature. And so what they would do, instead of swearing by the Lord's name, they would swear by much lesser things, you know, swear by the temple. They'd make a promise by Jerusalem or something of that nature. And not by God, so that if they broke the promise, God wouldn't be looking them up, you know. Because they didn't swear in his name. And Jesus says, listen, this kind of flippant promise is no use. You'd be much better to let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't make silly promises like that, superficial promises. Now, that said, that said, I I don't think Jesus went so far as to say that we should never, ever make any kind of promise. And even this new covenant agreement does not deny the fact that we also find in the New Testament promises that people make. For example, and there's a, I don't want to do a whole Bible study on this, but for example, the Apostle Paul. 
There are many instances where we find the Apostle Paul using language that reflects the fact that he made promises. He uses this phrase pretty constantly in his epistles. He says, God is my witness. He says in one place, I call God to be a witness to my soul. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2.10, to them, you are my witnesses and so is God. Now, when do you need a witness? You need a witness when you're making a promise, like at a wedding. So Paul not only committed to do certain things, but he made certain promises with God as his witness. Now, this is not to say that we should, we should enter covenants and, and, and little promises and vows lightly. If we think that, look at the verdict which then was passed on Judah. And through Jeremiah, in verses 12 to 22, the Lord voices his displeasure. He is angry. He is angry that his covenant people have broken their promise. You think promises aren't seriously? Just look at the devastating way he begins here. He says, I am a covenant God. I am a God who made an agreement with you, verse 13. This is what the Lord says, I made a covenant with your forefathers. And get this, when I brought you out of the land of slavery. He's saying that they have forgotten God's covenant faithfulness. They've forgotten the fact that they were slaves. That they were set free by God. And did God send them back? Did did God say after a while, well, I'm changing the agreement, I'm changing the terms, back to Egypt you go? No. Because he made a covenant promise. And as you know, if you read your Bible, God always keeps his covenant promises. He is faithful. He's the faithful one, as we've just been singing. They've forgotten that. And moreover, secondly, they have broken God's law. Because when I brought you out, I said, verse 14, every seventh year of each of you must free any fellow Hebrew who has sold himself to you. See, they've not just broken a covenant, they've also broken a law. They've not just broken a promise, they've also broken a specific command in the law of God. Double jeopardy. You were only allowed to keep a Hebrew slave for six years. And then in the seventh year, you had to set them free. It was the law of God. And yet Judah's forefathers had been running this law amok for centuries. They'd just been keeping their slaves ad infinitum. But recently, verse 15, you repented and you did what was right in my sight. Each of you proclaimed freedom for his own countrymen. The Lord's saying, you obeyed my law for a little while. You even made a covenant before me in the house that bears my name. But now you have turned around and profaned my name. Which is the worst part of all, is it not? And the Lord is angry. The Lord doesn't take it lightly when his people do this. Because he loves the glory of his name. And the Lord's response is really frightening. It's very difficult to think about, to face up to, perhaps. Because in verse 17, the Lord proclaims freedom. You want to talk about freedom? I've got a proclamation for you, says the Lord. You're free. Freedom to fall by the sword, plague, and famine. 
Freedom to be killed by the blade, by the virus, by starvation if the other two don't get you. Such is the seriousness of breaking promises to God. And when this happens, of course, rather than you being the attractive nation you are meant to be to all the other nations around you, instead you will be repugnant to them. Verse 17, you will be abhorrent to the kingdoms of the earth. And most terrible of all, you will experience the punishments appropriate to breaking the covenant. Verse 18, the men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they have made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two. Again, when you cut a covenant, you kill the animal. You walk between the pieces to remind you, this is the consequence. You knew what you were signing up for, said the Lord, when you made this promise. And you will be like that calf. You, you will be dead meat. You will, he says in verse 20, you will be bird food. For the creatures of the air, as, as the Babylonians swoop down and swoop in. Can we see this morning, I know this is heavy, can we see just how serious God is about our promises to Him? In fact, maybe you're, you're saying to yourself this morning, I'm really glad that I haven't made many promises to God. can't really think of any. That's what I thought until I started to really rack my brains about this. Oh, Jesus, have I promised? Just think about all the promises that you may have made this morning if you were a Christian. Let me ask you, are you baptized this morning? Have you been baptized? Do you know that according to 1 Peter 3.21, baptism is a promise. You said, I thought it was just about giving my testimony and getting plunged under some water. Listen, the pledge of a good conscience towards God, that's what baptism is. Which means, this is a promise that you make in light of the fact that Jesus has cleansed you and washed you of your sin. This is a promise that you now make to live a life that fights against and resists actively sin in your life and in your heart. That's what a pledge of a good conscience is. You see, I didn't even realize I was promising that. Now you know. How's it going on that front? If you are baptized this morning, and that is many of you, how are you doing with the promise you made to resist sin each and every single day of your life? Are you resisting sin this morning, this week? Or have you just caved into it lately? Are you married? Uh, I, I, I spoke about this. It's just relevant to me this weekend. When I stood before this, congr- this congregation that was there at my wedding six years ago, I not only took a vow to my wife, I also, in a very real sense, took a vow to God. It was God that joined our marriage together. I made the covenant agreement in the sight of God, before God. And husbands, let me ask you, how are you doing on that promise that you made to God? You say, well, I've been pretty much faithful to my wife, at least in action. Good. But how are you doing on some of the other parts of the promise? 
to love, to honor, and to cherish your wife. Have you cherished your wife at all times this week? When you came home from work and you were feeling exceedingly tired, did she know in the way that you communicated to her and listened to her that you cherished her? Single people. I know some of you, I know some of you have made a vow, some kind of promise. And you said that I know God's word forbids me to marry someone who's not a Christian. And therefore, Lord, I'm promising you, I'm making a commitment that I'm not going to date a non-Christian either. Because I know where that would lead to. Now, I know some of you have made that promise. Maybe some years ago. And you're still single. Let me ask you, are you still keeping to that promise? Because I know some people who get to a point and they say, enough's enough, sorry Lord, forget the promise. I'm doing one thing. Parents, some of us have stood in this pulpit, Danny was mentioning it earlier on, and we've said, we've promised with dependence and divine grace and in partnership with the church to teach our children the truths and duties of the Christian faith and by prayer, precept and example to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Mums and dads, how has the discipline and instruction of the Lord been going this week? Have we been doing a little bit of that? Maybe a lot of that? So many different promises. A moral promise. You say, what do I mean by a moral promise? Job. Remember what Job said? He said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully on a woman. Now, Job knew the law. He understood the fact that the law forbade him to look upon a woman lustfully, a woman not his wife. And in addition to this, Job, maybe he struggled in this area. We're surmising, perhaps. But he also made a covenant pledge. He said, I'm not going to look myself into trouble, Lord. I'm making a covenant about what I fix my eyes upon. Maybe translating this in today's language, when I walk down Prince's Street and it's a nice hot sunny day, I'm going to look down to the concrete all the way. Because I know some of the things I might see. And some of the sin that that might lead me into in my heart. So I'm making a promise about that. Listen, are you keeping to those promises you made? Those commitments about where you would go, what you would look at? Church life. I, I could go on about this all morning the more you think about it. I know people don't take forms all that seriously these days. Uh, you know, when we sign up to be members of this church, we don't just take boxes. We take promises. We take promises. Look at some of these things. If accepted into membership, are you prepared to commit yourself in reliance on the grace of God, thankfully? To be active in your involvement in the Lord's work at Charlotte Chapel, yes? Regular attendance at services and meetings as far as is practical, yes? Give in accordance to your means towards the Lord's work. Live in a manner appropriate to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and to recognize the authority of the elders of this church and the help, support, guidance and discipline of the members. Let me ask you, are you, are you still ticking these boxes? These are promises that we made. 
goodness, we've made a lot of promises. This is very scary stuff. And, and as, we, as we lay them on the table like that, and as I, as I put the, some of the promises that I've made just before my own gaze, my heart is saying, I wondered if yours is this morning, I don't keep my promises like I should. I break many of these. Do you feel guilty? I feel guilty about this. We should feel guilty about this. And rather than lifting the burden off us, as we come back to thinking about this in Jeremiah, as we move into chapter 35, the sense of guilt deepens. So after you've done your Bible study on chapter 34, you're feeling pretty depressed. After 35, you're ready to chuck the towel in. But you need to stay with this. You need to humble yourself this morning under the Lord's word to you. As he would take us further down just to consider even more the guilt that we have in this area. And what he does is he placards before us an example of promise keepers. Promise keepers. The Rechabites. Now, an important footnote here. Chapter 35 does not chronologically follow chapter 34. Uh, The chapter comes later. The story is earlier. And in chapter 35, this story rewinds. It's a sort of flashback, you might say. See, often this is what Jeremiah does. He, he groups things together, not in time, but in theme. And he takes us back to a day when Jehoiakim, the brother of Zedekiah, was on the throne. And the theme of this chapter, too, is also promises. The contrast is about to be made between the promise-breaking Judah of chapter 34 and the promise-keeping faithfulness of the Rechabites. You see, the Rechabites, these guys who we're going to learn about now, are a case study in faithfulness. A case study in faithfulness. Now, first of all, we need to understand that this whole incident is a setup. It is a setup. Uh, I wonder if you've been in this situation. You're invited out by some friends for a nice, quiet meal, and uh, you turn up ready for some quiet conversation, and you come through the doors, and bam, the world is there for your meal. Surprise! And uh, you're quickly trying to figure out who is responsible for this. You know, you, you set me up. Well, just look at this. The Lord sets up the Rechabites. He really does set them up. In verses 1 and 2, the word comes from the Lord to Jeremiah. We're going to stage a surprise here. Go to the Rechabite family and invite them to come to one of the side rooms of the house of the Lord. I imagine that they come just expecting some hospitality and some nice conversation. But here's the surprise. Give them wine to drink. You've got to understand what a test of faithfulness this was for the Rechabites. Listen to this description of the Rechabites. This is who they were. The Rechabites were a family guild who worshipped God strictly after the manner of the patriarchs, living as nearly as possible in the nomadic fashion of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Crops, vineyards, Houses, towns, and cities all tied men to one place. And all manner of soft, lazy extravagance. This was the the Rechabites' worldview. They were shepherds. They were nomads. They wandered around in the desert. And they took vows 
about certain pleasures that they would not engage in. One of the vows was about wine drinking, that they would not allow alcohol to pass across their lips. Now, just imagine this humorous but difficult situation. The great prophet Jeremiah invites you into the hospitality suite of the Lord's temple. And you're feeling so privileged to be invited by this man. This is maybe a hero of yours. And you're feeling so privileged. You come in the door and you look around the room for the, you know, the nice finger food. And soon you discover it's only drink that's on offer. And what is worse, you discover that it's only alcoholic drink. There's not even a slower alternative, you know, as you get at these sort of Christian things. Uh, teetotalers in the back room of the temple, you know, with a bit of wine. It's just... And the Lord's prophet, just think of the pressure of this. Jeremiah, he's saying to you, drink up. It's, it's on my tab. You know, I'm the Lord's servant. Drink up. Come on. And you don't want to reject his hospitality. It would be something of an embarrassment. Maybe we should just say, maybe they had this conversation, you know, while in Jerusalem and with the prophets, do what the prophets do. Or what the prophets tell you to do. No. They replied, we do not drink wine. Listen to this reason. Because our forefather, Jonadab, son of Rechah, gave us this command, neither you nor your descendants must ever drink wine. So, they, so we won't drink. Why? Because Jonadab, who lived, listen to this, 250 years earlier, in the days of Elijah, he commanded us not to do this. And we have obeyed, verse 8, everything our forefather commanded us. Maybe with the exception of coming into the city, uh, the ad. But the Babylonian army were coming, you know, and we had to get in for safety. But this was astonishing faithfulness, wasn't it? And, and you know, here's the rub of this. When you hold this example in, in chapter 35, up against chapter 34, you see two shameful comparisons between Judah and the Rechabites. Number one, here's the first one. The Rechabites obeyed a lesser master, but they were faithful. The Rechabites obeyed a lesser master, but they were faithful. No wonder the Lord asked them in verse 3, Will you not learn a lesson and obey my words? Jonadab, son of Rechab, ordered his sons not to drink wine, and this command has been kept. To this day, they do not drink wine, because they obeyed their forefather's command. But I have spoken to you again and again, and you will not obey me. See, don't get the wrong idea here. The issue is not whether or not we should drink wine or alcohol. Or even whether or not Jonadab made, a, made the right kind of move here when he told his sons to obey this covenant. The issue isn't alcohol. The issue is obedience. The issue is unfaithfulness or faithfulness. And they were faithful to what their forefather taught them. And they kept it simply because some forefather, some guy, way down the generations said, obey this. And yet you have closed your ears to the Lord your God. That's the second thing. The Rechabites listened to instruction. Adam brackets, Judah closed its ears. 
Notice the emphasis about listening and hearing. Verse 15, you have not paid attention or listened to me. In verse 17, I spoke to them, but they did not listen. I called to them, but they did not answer. Isn't that a shocking thing? The Rechabites opened their ears to something their forefathers said. They would not even listen to the Lord. It's a damning thing when this kind of contrast happens, isn't it, in our day? Not only when we break our promises, but when, by contrast, others keep their promises for lesser reasons. This is this horrible scenario. There are two neighbors, and they live side by side. One of them is called unbeliever. The other one's called Christian. And unbeliever and Christian, listen, they both get married, since we're on that theme. They get married, but they get married for different reasons. Unbeliever pledges to be faithful to his wife simply because he likes the idea of marriage. Because he loves his wife. But, of course, as an atheist, he makes no pledge to God. Christian, on the other hand, as he goes down to the altar, he gets married in a church and he makes a vow before God, to God, that he will be faithful to his wife. Now, here is a scandal I tell you, unbeliever reaches this year 50 years of faithful marriage to his wife. Celebrating their golden wedding this year. Which is good. Which is good. But here's the scandal. Christian didn't make it. After 15 years or so, he walked out on his wife and on his promise to God. And he made a covenant with God. Not just with himself, but with God. Doubly culpable, aren't we, when that happens? And maybe probably as we come to this, we're coming to the end now, maybe after this second point, you are feeling even more guilty. Even lower, perhaps. And I wouldn't want to just lift the burden off you this morning. In fact, Jeremiah doesn't do that at the end of this section. It ends on a pretty, a fairly sour note. You see, in conclusion, we are reminded, and this is probably the, the, the central point of these passages, we're reminded of the seriousness of our promises. The result of the, the, the promise breaking of Judah in 35 is that Judah will experience every disaster that the Lord had pronounced upon them. And the Rechabites will be shown a little bit of grace because they were faithful to their forefather. See, if you make a promise to God, it matters to Him. We may have shoved a bit of paper in a drawer somewhere or filed a commitment somewhere deep in the recesses of our minds. We've maybe even forgotten it, but He has not. Maybe, Maybe this morning there has been one particular area as I went through a list of different things, that the Holy Spirit has been convicting you about. Some area where you really have stuck your promise in a drawer and forgotten about it. And God is leaning on our soul this morning as He has been for me, and He is saying to us, you've forgotten about that. You need to do something about that. Our response should be, I'm going to take my promises, all of them, seriously, as God takes them seriously. But, as we do, 
and this is absolutely crucial, do not close the door to grace. Because this passage, secondly, reminds us of our need for grace. Of our need for Christ. Of our need for the gospel. See, even with a renewed resolution this morning to keep our promises, there is not one of us who will not come back in next week having failed in many of the, the pledges we've made. See, even with our best efforts, we cannot, we cannot keep our promises. Not perfectly. Even the Rechabites don't get the wrong idea about them. They were faithful to this one promise. But the passage doesn't say they were sinless. And the Bible says elsewhere in the book of Romans chapter 3 that there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. And you see, because none of us seek God because of our our sinful tendency in our hearts, we will always fail to keep His promises in our own strength. If it were not for grace, if it were not for Christ, if it were not for the gospel... Just look at this table as we finish. We're going to be just focusing on this in a few moments' time. And realize that in all of human history, there is one individual who has kept his promises faithfully. I guess we don't often think of the gospel in that way. But Jesus Christ was a a promise keeper. In the book of Hebrews... Jesus is quoted. He says, speaking of his earthly mission, I have come to do your will, O God. Frequently he alluded to this in his ministry, that he had made a vow to do the Father's will. And one of the things the Father asked him to do was to die. To go to a cross and to give his life for the sins of the world. I'll tell you, Jesus faced enormous pressure to break that promise. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, as the cross loomed, as the suffering, the horror, was directly before him, he prayed, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. You see, he remembered his promise to the Father that he would do his will. And he kept that promise all the way to the cross. He died on a cross as a promise keeper for promise breakers. So that we could be forgiven. So that we could know a personal relationship with him this morning. You know, if you've been convicted this morning, God's goal is not to drive you to despair, but to drive you to the cross. To the cleansing blood, which cleanses you from your sin. We're going to sing of this in a moment. Come to Jesus. There's grace for us all this morning. For the promises we failed to keep. May we praise God. May we thank Him. May we come in faith to the promise keeper. For what He did for us when He died on the cross. Let's pray.